Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with James Sussman. James, how are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I just actually, maybe a month or two ago, finished work, your latest book. But your first book, uh, so Affluence Without Abundance, these books have dramatically changed my perspective on humanity, on our relationship with our environment. And also just there, you know, if there's one thing that I, I've been trying to think of, like what tops it off, because there's a lot in these books, but one of them is that there's a lot of things that we think are just the way the world is. And it's much more the systems that we've created for ourselves. And a couple of the top level things, I think, you know, we tend to think, I certainly did think that we live longer than ever, we're healthier than ever, getting ever closer toward equality and stability. And well, if you look at the past couple hundred years, or even thousand years, or even 10,000 years, that, that may be the case. But, and here's something I say to a lot of people. I talk about how from the steam engine until my birth was about 200 years. And in that time, we've dramatically changed the earth. Then in Southern Africa, there are these San Bushmen, among whom you've lived for decades, I believe, who lived, the archaeological record shows that they live. And then I ask people, about how long have they lived there, do you think? And if you had asked me this question before I read your stuff, I would have guessed maybe 10,000 years, something like around the agricultural revolution. But the archaeological record shows something more like 200,000 years. So a thousand times longer than the time it took us to bring us to where people seriously talk about losing civilization, possibly extinction certainly extinction of many other species. People have lived stably and more leisure time, more stability, more equality. And I can only imagine over 200,000 years, the types of other species that would come and go and weather and climate that must have changed in that time. And they, they lived. And that's the starting point for, well, that's affluence without abundance. Then work traces through how... I guess maybe I'm going on too long. I guess at the beginning of it, you talk about how we generally, economics, we look at how we distribute scarce resources, but it's scarce because we look at it that way and we've created a world that way, but they live with abundance. And not just them, lots of other cultures have lived with abundance that I I mean, it's still propagating through my life how this changes. I feel like I've kind of scattered around some of the main things that your works have, have covered, partly because in my personal life, how much it changes my perspective on the world, humanity, nature, myself, it's still reverberating. How much have I, have I gotten it, like some of the top yeah. level stuff? No, you've, you, look, you've, you've, got, you've got it absolutely right. I mean, look, one, one of the extraordinary things, I mean, I suppose, let, let, let me start not necessarily with hunter-gatherers, but really with what anthropology or traditional social anthropology is. You know, which is this process that involves you going somewhere. And ideally, in the old days, because the world was full of people who lived in very different, diverse ways and experienced the world in diverse ways. And it was a process in effectively going somewhere that made all your assumptions about home, that challenge where people lived and experienced the world in a way that really was fundamentally and profoundly different and quite alienating. Um, And certainly, you know, there's a huge value in that process in terms of what it does is, you know, there's an expression that one of my supervisors actually years and years ago used is that the virtue of proper ethnographic fieldwork, as they called it back then, 
was that it made the strange familiar and the familiar strange. It effectively decentered the self. So it gave you a perception, really, of yourself and others through completely taking away certainty about what you'd assumed was nature. Because, you know, culture masquerades as nature. It's one of the great tricks of human evolutionary history is, you know, what we persuade ourselves, what we grow up in, what well, the way our experiences imprint themselves in us neurologically and physiologically, the way we are made by the world we live in, tends to make us assume that certain things are just natural. This is just the way they are. And, you know, the wonderful thing about working with the Jinwasi in particular, and I suppose other Bushman groups too, was that, you know, in our world, we come with a huge amount of baggage about what is economically natural. You know, this idea that, you know, humans have insatiable appetites, that we're inherently deeply competitive, that we're always at odds with each other, that it's, there's an extension of this competition for energy that was once thought to define the natural world, and that this is how human beings work. And the beautiful thing about the Zhenwasi, and indeed other hunter-gatherer societies, who tend to operate by very similar sets of economic principles representing a very different way of looking at the world, and in their particular case, what it exposed most powerfully was the extent to which many of these ideas, these economic ideas, which are supposed to be grounded in human nature, are actually just a particular Western or not even a Western, a sort of Neolithic mythology, a mythology that emerged in response to agriculture. And it exposed that for me. I mean, that's the, you know, if, the, if there's a sort of crucial thing, there's a whole series of other things one learns living with people like the Jutrasi. And it's, you know, but the, one of them is that these basic economic assumptions around which we organize our world and which form as the basis, they're the roots of our economic institutions, they're the roots of our systems of employment, they underwrite so much of our behavior. And people justify behaviors on the basis of human nature. That's why we, that's why we do it. And the Zhenwasi suggests that this just wasn't, isn't the case. And, uh, and indeed, not just the Zhenwasi, but all sorts of other hunters and foragers. And, you know, in terms of the really big things that they've, they, they show us, the first one is, is that our economic assumptions are indeed, you know, we think of them as human nature, but actually they're culture. We can trace a history of them. We can see how and why they emerged, how they bedded in, how they got amplified over time. And at the same time, and closely linked with this, with um, people like Zhenwasi again, but indeed huge amount of other cultures across the world, but cultures ostensibly who live by different means, in particular hunting cultures. It also subverts our ideas about what is human and non-human, nature and culture, which is the sort of thing that, you know, human, humankind separates itself. We're cultural beings and then there's the natural world out there and it's a separate thing. and you know, there's, it's very clear now that these ideas about nature and culture, these ideas about economics, these ideas about human ascension are all historically traceable and we can make sense of them and we can understand them and we can map them. And what this is useful for is it helps us ask questions about the future and how we can engage with our own lives when it comes to, you know, the extraordinary changes that we're going to have to make in order to live sustainably. Yeah. It- Maybe one of the biggest things that I saw in work was when, and there's a lot of them. So to the listeners, whatever I share, whatever we talk about, it's like a small fraction of what 
comes across. But cities was one thing that really shocked me because I think of a city as a place where culture comes together and like, this is where culture is. This is where the best of human stuff comes out with the paintings and you got great sports and things like that and literature and so forth and universities. But the division of the, the stratification of society and what you were talking about in the, the laws about the labor laws of, I, I don't remember offhand, it was something like some, somewhere in the industrial revolution, they, they, like for 12 to 14 year olds limiting to only 80 hours a week or maybe hundred hours a week <laughs> and nine year olds to only 80. And now that's in the past, but you can see the tug for people to do that today. And you can also see, I mean, we are supposed to, people predicted not that long ago that we would work less and less as we automated more and more. And when I was a kid, it seemed like an idea of a utopia was the robots could take care of everything for us and we, would, we could just have what we wanted. But that's not the way it's playing out at all. People fear that and we keep working more and more. No, well, look, so far, I suppose the starting point for the book work was exactly that question. You know, so in 1930, John Maynard Keynes wrote that now very famous essay where he predicted that by now we'd be working 15 hours a week. And what was useful about him, as opposed to others who predicted similar kind of utopian dreams from Oscar Wilde and, you know, the Oscar Wilde to all sorts of people have done it. Um, but Keynes effectively put numbers on it. And he said it's going to happen within a century because we're past the key thresholds in terms of productivity and technological growth and capital growth to ensure that everybody's basic needs were met. And what Keynes believed was he believed that, you know, ostensibly once all of us have our basics satisfied, and he wasn't absolutely clear what basics were. You know, I mean, Keynes liked a good whiskey and he liked decent tobacco for his pipe and he liked good food. And he, yeah, he, he liked he liked good entertainment too, as far as I can tell. But you know, we can't tell. We don't know exactly what basic needs are. But he he said, you know, ostensibly when our material needs are looked after, when we are confident that we're not going to starve, that we're going to be warm, we're going to be able to focus our time and our energy and our resources on doing other things, things that are perhaps more virtuous for the soul or work that brings us pleasure, or indeed that people might be able to do the work that they wanted to rather than learn to try and love whatever miserable work they found. You know? So I imagine what they saw when you get into it is you, it's a world which has, is sufficiently productive that pretty much everybody can focus their time doing what they want to do. And often that is what they do well. You know, so if you think about the, if I think about the number of musicians I know or artists whose lives have basically been wasted, great artists and musicians who just simply haven't got lucky commercially, um, and they've spent their life doing crappy jobs and being basically <laughs> miserable. I mean, there's no shortage of great artists whose sort of lives have ended in torpor because they've had a terrible time. At the same time, I also often think about people who might have been brilliant virologists or, you know, chemical engineers or researchers into all sorts of things that are genuinely useful for us, who end up because of the way we organize our economy based on these, you know, so the way we amplify out of these principles of scarcity, 
But, the, you know, if you look at the traffic from a town like this, Cambridge, you know, where people, you know, who really want to be, say, for example, understanding the, the internal dynamics of beehives and, you know, how hexagons are wonderful structures. And instead they go off and, you know, end up working for some massive commercial company and trying to turn that into cash simply because of the way the reward system the reward system works. So we live in a world which tends to sort of incentivize people away from doing the work that they want. And I think this was the kind of vision of the utopia that Keynes and co had. And, you know, I asked myself, what is it, you know, we are 100 years hence, we pipped all the thresholds that Keynes imagined we needed to meet, and we beat them by a long shot um, in order to have our basic needs met. And we certainly have, you know, the levels of wealth we have are extraordinary. But when you look through, in particular, and again, you know, wealth concentrates in cities and you look through history and you look in particular through recent history as technologies continue to amplify and ratchet up our productivity, where has all that so-called wealth gone? Well, it's gone to a very small proportion of people. And that's just simply because of the way we organize our economies. We have this myth that people can work their way, you know, everybody can work their way into their dreams. Um, you know, I suppose it's the sort of, it's the, the narrative of the American dream. It's something that people hold very dear in many places. But the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, hard work actually doesn't win you great riches or meet all these aspirations that you have anymore. And so wealth tends to concentrate in very few hands with the result that actually some people do need to work. So people who are working, you know, you end up with huge numbers of people who simply because they don't have access to capital are either working two jobs or doing crappy jobs or just to try and keep themselves going and alive. And because the value of labor in our economy actually isn't great at all, they don't get paid particularly well. And they're sort of, it's almost like, you know, jobs are almost like a little bit of charity. And it's it's sort of something you, you see this in sort of more obviously in sort of highly unequal economies like Namibia, where actually you feel, you know, the amount of people, if you live in Vintuk in the city, the amount of people who come to your door just knocking and saying, please, for you, you know, 50 cents, I'd like to clean your car, you know, or you drive in the morning and there are people on the bridges just waiting anybody to come and, you know, you can go up there with your truck and you'll get 50 people jump in for manual labor and you'll pay them a pittance in the day. And the truth is, you know, all the wealth accumulates in that one place and that labor actually is just cheap as, cheap as chips. And, and that's a, ultimately a problem of distribution, I think. It's a problem of sort of how we organize our economy. And I think this is what's happened with the great prediction of wealth is it's come crashing into this set of organizational models that came out of our obsession with scarcity. And these have, instead of allowing this surge in productivity that people like Keynes and all these utopians imagined would create the society where we all benefited, it's actually created places where people have huge amounts of value stored up in one form or another. And lots of people still effectively struggle on the marginal side and have aspirations to aspirations towards that. So I tend to think that actually we're in a position, and I think this is part of the reason of writing the book, is that we're capable now of really achieving this kind of utopia. We have the resources, we have the means, we have, but it's a question of how we organize ourselves. And it's a question about whether we're kind of brave enough to you know, bite the apple in a sense 
and embrace the possibility that actually if we organize things better, we could make sure that things are good for all of us and that this utopia is is there. You know, when Keynes wrote that essay in the 1930s, he he described the Great Depression, which was just kicking off and, you know, the stock market crash of 1929. He described that as the growing pains of an economy on the way to utopia. He recognized that things had to change. But he also, in that essay, very famously pointed out that, you know, he, he was terrified by the extraordinary change in values that it would require in that so many of our customs and institutions and ways of organizing ourselves have been based on, you know, the 10,000 years of agricultural history where scarcity was real and visceral and shaped us and shaped our aspirations and shaped our desire to acquire more and produce surpluses and control surpluses. And now we have to be brave enough effectively to abandon that. And unfortunately, we're creatures of habit. And we also invest longevity into these institutions. The more power we put into institutions, the stronger stronger they are and the harder it is to move beyond them. And so this is really the great challenge of our time, in my view. And, you know, somewhat ironically is that if we don't do something about it, then there's some very real constraints that I think are pushing on us that are going to either, you know, the, the trade-off is, you know, we don't do something about it. We can muddle on as we are, but I think things are going to end up very ugly um, rather rapidly at some point, or we can start actually embracing our wealth that we have and take a, yeah, be a little bit braver about looking at how we can distribute it equally and evenly, and then hopefully take away some of this aspiration that, plagues us all. In, in this country, if you say there's a certain system and we want to distribute things differently, everyone's like, oh, communism, socialism. And that knee-jerk reaction is, from the perspective of, on the 200,000-year timescale, is incredibly narrow. It's, it's very, yeah. like, looking at this tiny little difference when there's this major difference that happened that, that a long time before that I've never tried saying it. June, oh, I, see, I don't know how to say June, it. Well, it's not bad as a first attempt, I have to say <laughs> That's better than most people. Uh, glad to hear that. And they, I mean, if you talk about stability and something that works, they're, okay, before, was it Christopher Lee? I think a predecessor of yours who lived with them. Richard, Richard. Richard Lee. Lee yeah. Who you basically said what I felt, what I think most people think. They're a bunch of people who got stuck in the Stone Age. For some reason, they haven't gotten on board. Mm. And they're living the quintessential nasty brutish in short. Uh, they must be... The reason why we put on fat so quickly today is because we were always on the verge of starvation before. And the last thing we want is to be anything remotely like that. And then he goes and lives among them and finds out that they, uh, you can say better than I can, but I think they they have more leisure time. They have more egalitarian society. Their longevity and health has only barely, have have we barely recently caught up? Like we think, because a hundred years ago, 200 years ago in Europe or around the world, I think the life lifespan of a human was like 30, 40, 50 years old. And for them, I guess there was, if you made it out of childhood, you were going to reach 60 pretty likely. And we've only barely caught up to that. Yeah. No, look, it's absolutely, with Junquasi and indeed hunter-gatherers, you know, and with all, really, with pretty much all humans up until um, the Industrial Revolution and the beginnings of, you know, there was a real medical sequence of medical advances. And likewise, with the Industrial Revolution, nutritional advances, because effectively, one of the key things of the Industrial Revolution was people started, 
people discovered that actually you could turn fossil fuels into food. Mm-hmm. And that's really been one of the huge transformations. So certainly this idea of scarcity, which had shaped the, the agricultural era, didn't exist. Um, and lifespans extended accordingly. Now, with people like the Zhengwasi, as with all agricultural communities, there was a very high attrition rate in terms of your life within your formative years. So your highest risk period was zero to five. There's, again, significant infant mortality. And then you had a sort of risk period really up until your teens. But as you say, once you broke through that barrier, that you had every chance of, you know, you'd consider yourself unlucky not to live until 60. And part of the reason were for hunter-gatherers in particular was, you know, the one on the whole, they were pretty good at making a living where they were. And I think, you know, there's certainly hunter-gatherers who had a much harder time than Yungwasi, and there must have been through history, you know, all sorts of variation. And, you know, it's a long history, and we can't project it as being exactly the same all the time, but we can take sort of general principles. And likewise, I think that there were many hunter-gatherer societies that probably had it a lot easier than the Yungwasi. You know, we just don't know for sure, but we can only guess. So, for example, when I look at, say, some of the Zhengwasi's descendants in southern Africa, you know, and what we know from them is they occupied this cave in a beautiful place in Cape Town called Blombos. And, you know, and the cave is famous for being the first proper evidence of art, you know, fairly complex art. And there's evidence of jewelry making, there's makeup sets and all sorts of things from 70, 70, 80,000 years ago. But what's most interesting within that space is, you know, for me, what's, you know, is just the wonderful diversity of the diet. Because, I mean, I know that part of the world very well. I grew up there and my parents actually, before COVID, <laughs> spent most of their time there on that particular coast. And it is, it's you wander down, you wander down to the beach and there's cockles and, you know, endless walls of mussels and shellfish and crustacea and, Things and this is you know after you know intensive fishing for three hundred years on that coast, there's still a huge amount of life. And then of course there are the whales in the bay that occasionally wash up on the shore, and and then you know on the internal coastline there's a huge amount of actually you know the the biodiversity in that part of the world is extraordinary. In fact, it's one of the most bio the Cape the Cape Floral Kingdom is called is one of the most biodiversity rich places on earth. And there's endless plant foods that you can get. But also, as soon as you get out of that biome, you go inland and there's plains animals. So there's this extraordinary thing. I, I do not think people suffered a great deal for food, you know, really going back quite far in time. And I think part of it was, was you know, how high, you know, this is why human history is. And it's actually, you know, the data now suggests probably about 320,000 years old. Number sort of keeps keeps getting larger, but I think the reason why Homo sapiens have been around this long and they've been around in Africa this long is, in effect, as a species and a species who behaved somewhat differently to many other species, they found a decent balance. They found effectively a sustainable balance. I don't think populations grew particularly rapidly at all. Um, I think there's a high degree of stability. And I think lives were, for the most part, reasonably adequate. And obviously, there were terrible periods within it, but people coped with periods of intense giant climate change. There was, for example, until recently, the theory that the Toba volcanic eruption 74,000 years ago, you know, 
practically wiped out all of humankind. You know, it was it was a very well established theory up until about a decade ago. Now, most of the evidence actually suggests that people brushed off this great volcanic eruption that was meant to black out the sky, and you know, they actually notice when they look when you can find traces of it in many places in Africa. Um, and when you compare archaeological evidence of people before and after that, actually, it seems there's had very little impact on them at all. They coped with it. And I think it's partially because they were great adapters, partially because they had a foraging mindset, but also partially because the nature of foraging actually is it's a very successful way of making a living from an environment because it allows you to ride with the environment's own dynamic responses to change. So you ride the system. It's much more like riding a wave rather than trying to cut your way through it. You know, it's, I, I think, as sailors, you know, if you've got, you got a freak wave, you know, as a sailor, you either, either work with it, you know, if you try to fight against it, it's not going to happen. And I think that partially was the, the wonder of hunting and gathering, was that it was this system that amplified and maximized our adaptive capacities. At the moment, that's the kind of, you know, we need to embrace that kind of adaptivity in order to ensure that we survive into the future. The way that you talk about the decentralization, what you said at the beginning, it, I hadn't thought of this, but, you know, my background is in physics and we had a period of, of recognizing the earth is not at the center of the universe. The sun is not at the center of the universe. And that decentralization really enriches us and, and takes us off our high horse. That, that humility to nature, I think, enriches our lives and, and gets us not so stuck in our ways. Yeah. Is there a similar kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm not a cultural anthropologist. Is, it, is this a revolution in thinking in another area that's on that scale? Or, is it, or am I just so behind the things that this happened a long time ago and, and I'm, it's my own inexperience? Well, look, I think humans began to think we were the center of the world. You know, it was a byproduct of agriculture. You know, so this is, I think with agriculture, everything changed because, you know, when before we were agriculture, the world, the world was something people lived in and with. After agriculture, people lived on the world and the world had to live with them. You know, agriculture was really all about transforming the world, making it productive, rendering it productive. And it produced a huge change in mindset. Because in making your landscape productive, so for example, when hunter-gatherers saw their landscapes as inherently provident, generous, and productive, it was the gods, in a sense, that fed them. Or you could say as a proxy for the gods, whether they conceived of it as a god or not. When agriculture developed, what you effectively had was humankind taking some responsibility from the gods, saying, well, you know, the gods, you used to feed us in the past, but now... We're responsible for feeding ourselves. We're taking, it is our job to remodel and remake the landscape. And again, that was once the responsibility of God's humankind didn't bother remodeling the landscape. But farmers do. Farmers have to remodel and control the landscape. They, in fact, take some of the, take some of the role of the deities with them. And as a result of that, it produces a very different set of relationships and sense of being in the cosmos. And, you know, it's again, it's no coincidence that in pretty much all the religions that evolved with agricultural societies and early Neolithic societies are suddenly hugely hierarchical. They're all based on the idea of sacrifice and generosity. You suddenly end up with, you know, in the Zhongma world, for example, gods are very human. They misbehave. They're oh, yeah, I love these stories. Fallible, <laughs> difficult. But, you know, they, you, one doesn't worship them. They're like difficult neighbors. 
or sometimes engaging neighbors. But, you know, if they're sick, you go to, you know, it's like if your neighbor, I don't know, you, you know, burns crap in his yard all the time, you know, how do you get to go? You know, so they'd, they'd try, if the gods seem to make somebody sick, and ask you to go and try and they'd reason with the gods, they'd persuade them. In the agricultural world, it was all about worship. Suddenly gods were these irrational, all-powerful, very centralized things. And it was all to do with, so people did sacrifice here. Yeah, I pay you a tithe, effectively, a part of my harvest for having let me survive. So it produced this very different, very hierarchical way of looking at the world. And I think that's just followed all the way through into the way we organize things now. So it's, I mean, it's such, you know, agri, the, the shift to agriculture is such a profound one. And for me, it's, you know, one where we, in many ways, where you know we are post-agricultural, but we still organize our societies on the basis of a whole series of agricultural institutions and ideas and theologies and beliefs. And we've got to move beyond that. That is the key. And one of the ways of moving beyond that is to recognize that it wasn't always this way. And that actually there were, for a very long period in human history, people who, you know, did have all their basic needs met, as far as they were concerned anyway. And they organized their world very differently. And I hope that's where, where, you know, ultimately, I hope that's where we get to. Yeah, I mean, they would go out and get some food, and there's plenty of food, and they wouldn't get extra to stockpile because they know there's going to be more food there. Whereas here, we stockpile, it reminds me of a friend of mine who's a principal of a high school and uh, now several high schools because they're doing very well. I just remember one time saying like Bill Gates was saying something about education. He was like, why on earth do we think Bill Gates knows anything about education? Why should we listen to him? What? Like he's rich. He, he had a lot of business success and the Junwasi, they, someone comes back with a big animal and the first thing they say, and, and they're like, this is terrible. This is like, I mean, it's always about equality. It's always about or how my, I mean, they don't want someone to get too full of themselves because that messes everything up. And this is one of the places where it's like propagating through my, my mind is how do we look at people differently when we're not elevating them based on their wealth, their ability to have corralled. I mean, to me, what is wealth except the ability to influence others based on, uh, I don't want to get too much into it, but it, it's, if I have a lot of money and I'm key, if I have a lot of property, I'm keeping you from using it. To, for me to own it means I can keep you from using it. And I feel like that concept just isn't there. And in this country, we would talk about how when Europeans came here, the Indians didn't have a concept of, what do you mean buy the land? That doesn't make any sense. And it, I thought they sounded naive. I also felt like I would generally think of farms as peaceful, pastoral, <laughs> but armies are the result of farms. And Absolutely. Yeah. Richard Lee would spend time with them, with the, the Bushmen, if I'm using the right term, was in the Kalahari Desert. Why were they in the desert? Not because everywhere where people could build farms, they built farms and pushed people off the land and they were left only in the desert. Yeah. And nonetheless, the desert was plentiful. Yeah, it was. I mean, look, this is, this is the sort of great hidden part of that history as well. And it's been... Being one of the areas that I'd actually, you know, if I if I ever get a massive research grant again, it's one of the areas I'd love to look at because there's, you know, we can we untangle it a little bit with um, genetics, but you know, really up until about three thousand years ago, probably all of Southern Africa, and we're talking a huge area, you know, so an area easily the size of the United States and and more, which was 
I imagine there were hunter-gatherer populations established across all of that. And in fact, we do. We know that there are these genetic traces that exist, and we find those genetic traces in people like the Zhenwasi. And we also know from oral history and and again, you know, I mean, uh, I suppose archaeological evidence that they were all over Southern Africa. The fact that in, you know, the last century, the only mem people of, um, the only descendants of the original people in Southern Africa who hunted and gathered there for 300,000 years were happened to be in the desert, was simply the desert, the last place the farmers got to. Everywhere else they went, they wiped them out. And, you know, there's degrees of miscegenation and degrees of integration. We can see some moments of it in history. But it's a, you know, it's a, it's a clear pattern of engagement that happened everywhere. So we've got good evidence of this happening in Europe. You know, it happened recently in the places like the United States. Is effectively agricultural populations, you know, we imagine, you know, the way the narrative around the agricultural revolution has been um, exposed was that it was sort of an inevitable piece of progress that, you know, maybe hunter-gatherers would have seen farming neighbours on the horizon and been like, oh, my God, that's a good idea. Check out those guys. They've got a great field of corn and they got all this awesome stuff. And, yeah, let's copy and be like them. The evidence is, is that actually hunter-gatherers were extraordinarily resilient and opposed very much this change in lifestyle. But simply they didn't have the means because they were a low-energy culture, effectively. They didn't have the means of repelling them. So you have in certainly the genetic record for Southern Africa and Europe, you have to use a word which is used, I find, rather bizarrely and ridiculously by right-wing groups in the States. You do actually have a replacement of people. You have a replacement of indigenous hunter-gatherers by far agricultural societies who came in and actually treated them terribly and routinely massacred them. So we do have clear evidence of these bottlenecks and very little miscegenation. And then there are a handful of places which we know about where history didn't quite play out exactly that way. But what's interesting, nevertheless, is that places like, and this by that I mean places like Central Africa, you know, the, the areas which we now associate with the tropical rainforest, but in the past I think there were sort of patches of forest and savanna linkages. But we know that there for the last 2,000 years, hunter-gatherer populations and farming populations have lived adjacent to one another. And those hunter-gatherer populations have resolutely refused to become farmers for two um, for generations. I mean, 2,000 years. So not out of ignorance, not out of, we don't know what we're doing or stupidity. Not, no, not out of ignorance. And in fact, in fact, people like the Baka and the Aka and the Buti, historically, things are now changing now because the, we've got the emergence of real nation states and so on and so forth. But what they did was they did, and it's a phrase actually which I should use more. Um, it was coined by an anthropologist called Alan Barnard. And he talks about the foraging mode of thought is actually to be a hunter-gatherer, you don't necessarily only have to hunt and gather. You just have to behave like a hunter-gatherer. So what the hunter-gatherers did was they'd opportunistically use their neighbors, their agricultural neighbors, as a source of food. So in the same way that, you know, you might get um, edible fungi in some parts of the forest at a certain time of year, people would move there and use that as the main source. Or in a particular hunting season, when you when it's raining less, they go after the elephants or what have you. They'd also, in certain seasons, go and attach themselves to farmers' villages, where they'd kind of do odd jobs once in a while and you know, and make use of also, because ironically, rainforests are very low on um, carbohydrates. 
so they'd you'd make use of the farmer's manioc and stuff once in a while, and then they'd go back. But they'd treat it effectively in the same way they treated every other resource. It's something that you exploit to meet your immediate needs, and then you move on. And this is also what happened in the history of the Zhenwasi. I mean, we know this when the first white farmers started taking the land in the Kalahari. The Zhenwasi were like, oh, well, we'd be perfectly welcoming and accepting of them. And in fact, they thought it was great occasionally. They could get some cattle meat, you know, know, these big fat cattle that didn't run away. And also there were things like sugar and tobacco. And they're like, this is great. And then they'd stay, you know, sometimes they'd stay for three weeks, you know, as they might at a hunter-gatherer camp. Um, three weeks working and farmers would be like, oh, great, I've got staff, you know, I've got native labor. And then they just bugger off. <laughs> be like, okay, well, the rains have been good in Rickfontein, so off they'll go to go and hunt something else. And there is it's that kind of foraging mode of thought. I mean, I think it's something I've actually got to look into some more, but it is something, you know, it's a way of engaging with the economic world. And I actually think quite a lot of people in the modern world sort of have that and they sort of don't. You know, you get the kind of, the 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 sort of breeds of the the grifters, or there's this recent movie Nomad Land. You haven't seen it yet. Okay, well it's it's people who say you know live in their trucks, you know, and they say I'm not homeless, you know, I just don't have a house, and it's this kind of I suppose this sort of foraging mindset, this ability to sort of use things, take things as they are, this non-accumulative, and so it's it's yeah, it's an interesting <laughs> interesting space. I've had a personal experience with that in New York City. There's a group called the Freegans. So freegans go to yes. stores that are getting rid of their vegetables and stuff, the brew stuff, and it's all free. It's all going to get thrown away otherwise. And so there's, there's no cost. And when people, when the group gets together, no one is like, I want this, I want that. Everyone's like, here's some of this, here's some of that. Who wants this? Who wants that? And it's very generous. It's, and I was like, this is what I was just reading about. I mean, you know, obviously very different, but. This is the nature of, you know, this is why, again, farming and this whole Farming is the critical moment in the history of work is that, you know, for foragers living in relatively provident spaces or who considered their environments provident, you know, part of the reason, you know, property rights were very understated relative to the way we have them. They did absolutely have them. So the idea that there was no ownership is a nonsense, but they just didn't care a great deal about it. And partially they didn't care a great deal about it in the same way that if you happen to live I'd know, be born within one of these, born in a massive Walmart. You know, if the Walmart was your world and the shelves got mysteriously stacked every night, because everything there, you can just get something off the shelf, everything ostensibly loses its value because it's not scarce. That's the, there's so sharing, it doesn't become a big deal. And that really is how hunter gatherer societies worked, is they tended not to think of things like sharing or property as a big deal. It was something that was just there and it, and, and it existed. They didn't have this obsession with accumulation or scarcity because they had a sense that you could just pluck more fruit from the trees. So they were much more tolerant, for example, of things like what we'd call freeloaders, you know, people who don't contribute a great deal, which, of course, you must do because in any community you have different sets of skills and capacities. You know, So what do you do if somebody's got a club leg, club foot, you're going to be like, well, you can't hunt, so you can't do anything. You know, actually, no, you can stay home and tell stories and be relatively useful. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's such a different world. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. 
Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. There are a couple of questions that I, I've been dying to get answers to. And one of them is population growth that I would have thought if there's abundance, then the population will grow until there's no more abundance. And which led me to wonder how did they manage the population? Because biologically speaking, I thought in principle, they could grow as fast as we do. But I finally found a paper that researched the habits of, of Breastfeeding goes on for years and years. So, and the onset of the first period starts significantly later. And so that they have, this, this paper said that they have something like four to five kids of whom two survive to adulthood through no, there's no, well, I, I suppose there's some managing the infanticide, I guess. Yeah, that, no, there, but, I, look, I don't think there was infanticide with the Genovasi, although I suspect that, you know, in the anthropological literature, there's certainly evidence of infanticide in all sorts of societies. Many agricultural yeah, ones. And American and Yeah. And in particular Western. with twins, and because of the potential burden that had on parents. But certainly, yeah, the evidence of birth control with people like the Genoisi is, I think the primary mechanism was, as you as you say, so the fancy word for it is I think postpartum partum amenhoria, which is effectively the fact that you cease being fertile. And that's because children do stay on the breast for a very long time. So you'll have you know, it's 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 five year olds will sort of stride up to mum and you know grab a grab a quick swig, and there's a sense really as soon as kids are able to sort of walk and look after themselves to a degree or become part of this hierarchy. Well, it's not a hierarchy of looking at but cascading, you know. So age groups of kids there typically are highly mixed, or certainly in the hunter gatherer days were. So you'd end up with you know a fourteen year old. A group of kids together, 14, 13, 11, 9, a couple of five-year-olds, and then the five-year-olds carrying the two-year-old. There's this kind of, because it was so unhierarchical, you had these mixed age groups that sort of looked after each other. And children became, in that sense, independent quite quickly. But for that period, that first five years, as long as they're on the breast, populations remain pretty low. And Again, what I've been waiting for, and I'm hoping some of the genomic demographers will come up with some answers on this, I think, but by looking through the historical, you know, layering of genomes, we can get a better sense of what actual populations were. But I think for, you know, a really very long period of time, you had population growth levels that were so low that it was almost a permanent form of stability. And, you know, again, it's not a natural, you know, again, it's a kind of agricultural phenomenon, this whole Malthusian thing that, you know, once you get energy, your population will grow to the maximum of that energy. And that certainly was characteristic of pretty much every agricultural society, pretty much until the agricultural revolution. We had this massive surge in food energy. And now, of course, we're in that sort of strange reality of actually, you know, when you look at urban spaces and in particular rich, mainly Western countries, but, you know, also many countries in East Asia as well, you're looking at effectively a sort of net negative population growth rates in these very rich countries. And you see this phenomenon as well. It's where places where it gets very starkly marked are like in, in Namibia, where you'll have people from the same 
the cultural community, those who are living in the countryside will have lots of children. Those who are living in the city will always just have one or two. And so there does seem to be this sort of shift. Um, and I think it's where, again, I think it's it's one of the few encouraging things about modernity is that actually we're emulating our hunter-gatherer ancestors a little bit more and, and you know, not not reproducing quite as much as we were. So it was really not like a, it wasn't a centralized decision-making process. It was just, I, I would guess that people looked at around them and they had the number of kids that was right for them. I think it was just things became norms. I think sort of life adjusted and organized itself and then they organized their cultural norms around it. But yeah, I, th- I think it just simply worked out that, you know, mothers would have children every number of years based on, you know, how long they nursed existing children. And then the window for fertility was often often reduced anyway. So yeah, it's. I think it's one of those sort of. It's a fascinating question and one I'd be really interested in. That's why I'm really hoping. I keep nagging the genomic people to sort of come up with something because it's. It's again, we know very little about population numbers really any time from ten thousand years ago. Every the minute you get into the demographics, it's a huge amount of speculation. And from genomics, they can work out things. They can work out. I suppose what they could call what they call a sort of reproductive population group, but that's not a real population group. But yeah, I, I'd be fascinated to get a better idea of human Homo sapiens population history, and I think we will through genomics and time. The last thing I've, I would love to talk to you forever—not forever, but for a long, long time—the relationship with animals. You know, I, I stopped eating meat in 1990, and I've I've been on this long multi decade journey from feeling like, oh, I'm so good to, I mean, vegans and vegetarian communities often feel like we have compassion for animals and they don't. And the relationship that they have seems very different. It, I mean, like it's, it's an empathy and, and I mean, nothing like factory farming. It, it's, I don't know if there's, if, if there's enough time to talk about it, but, and, and you also did, there's a piece in the New York Times that you wrote. I think I read this before reading work where you talked about their relationship with the dog Yep. And the people who wrote in response to it freaked out because they <laughs> yes. thought these, they were being really cruel to the dog. Yeah. And I thought of the greater picture of what we're doing to the entire world and like the cruelty that we're doing to ourselves and to billions of people is so much greater through our ignorance. And, and they don't look at that. We yeah. today. No, absolutely. Look, the, the Jean-Glacier, and in fact, all hunting, you know, all cultures that actually survived and thrived in hunting have, yeah, I mean, it's actually been one of the most interesting things. And it's ironic that in anthropology, it's one of the things that I think theoretically was cracked really only after it became increasingly difficult to find any cultures that still legitimately hunted. But this whole idea of empathy and what's loosely called perspectivism in anthropology, which is a complicated form of animism, but it's really recognizing that the boundaries between human and animal are not, you know, that there wasn't this kind of ascendance, that the humans weren't separate amongst the animals. All animals were separate amongst animals in an equal, similar way. So from the jaguar's point of view in the Amerindian rainforest, you know, jaguars spoke to one another in jaguar and experienced the world as jaguars. Um, And they presumably thought that humans experienced the world as humans in a different way. And within that space, it allowed, of course, as in the natural manner of relationships that 
pertain and you know evolve in any in any environment you end up with creatures eating other creatures and so there was this essentially empathy for it but it never translated into sympathy in the same way that you know the lion never sits and mourns the wildebeest that it's eating at the time and you know in the same way that in the same way that you know a fly doesn't you know mourn the carcass that it's sort of eating a little bit but that doesn't mean that one can't empathize with the animal and in fact you know for hunters the empathy, I think, was profound. I think they developed a far more intuitive and powerful sense of how animals perceived and engaged the world through this act of hunting. Because in the Zhongma case, to track and follow an animal, and you know, they hunted with these very small bows and arrows, you know, taking down pretty big animals. And you know, in the Kalahari, it's not like vast herds of game. You don't sit up there on the plane and go like, "Oh, there's," a, you know, it's not like the bison in the United States. It, you know, what you find is it's flat. There's scrubby thorn bushes everywhere. You see tracks in the sand, and you time those tracks, and you follow. And the way to interpret and find make those tracks meaningful is you have to live the maker. You have to be able to infer what the maker's doing and how and why. And for hunters, they describe the process as when they're in the act of hunting or progressively losing their self. As they get close to the animal, their self merges with the prey. And it's a very powerful thing and very common in, again, pretty much all hunter-gatherer cultures. So there's interesting versions of it up in Siberia with the Yakushans. And, but this merging of self and other in a perceptive sense, because in order to just get close to, a, you know, for example, for somebody to get within 20 meters stalking range of a, you know, alert kudu bull in the Kalahari, it requires, you've got to live and experience the world through the senses of that bull that you're pursuing. And because of that intimacy, it creates not a kind of affection, but a kind of communion of being. And one that actually ultimately becomes a communion of being of, you know, you consume their flesh, you actually physically become of the same body at a certain point. And it produces, I think, a very different way of engaging and seeing the animal world. And uh, yeah, as as you say, there's there's something, you know, I'm a meat eater and I've hunted and I've fished and I've hung out with a, you know, and I, I, I don't think I could do it any other way. But there, there's a certain obscenity to the factory farming world. And there is, again, I mean, just as an example of, you know, the, the astonishing, I mean, the, yeah, the, the fact that we have now produced such huge levels of mammalian biomass, you know, I think I can't remember what the, I've got, I need the stats close at hand, but it's that is sort of astonishing. Again, we've effectively... T- yeah, I think we're something like us plus our animals is like 96% of the... Yeah, of mammalian biomass. But it's also, you know, the reason why the fact is that cows farting screws with climate change and our carbon carbon budget is because there's effectively now four or five times as many mammals. The mammalian biomass on Earth is much larger than it was 200 years ago. We've effectively gone and converted a whole bunch of fossil fuels into cattle, primarily cattle, sheep, and a few other bits and pieces too. But that's that's why it's a problem. You know, that's why it's a challenge um, in terms of climate change. And then that's just not to mention that, yeah, the utter misery of these completely incomplete lives that, you know, livestock are banished to. Yeah, I think I think the question about animal rights and wrongs and veganism and vegetarianism is, a. I think it's one of the great questions of our age because it 
does speak at its tendrils going to all sorts of other things. And it is, in a way, in a really crude way, it's it's one of the most sort of visceral and side effects of our sort of just mass and completely unsustainable historical exploitation of fossil fuels. Do I have time for one more question? Sure, let's do a last one. Because you're, you're talking about the subjective experience of as they approached the bull and they would go into another state. I'm not sure if I'm saying the right way. There's something that I've been thinking of since I've been not flying and uh, not buying packaged food. Before I did these things, I thought I was going to lose out. I thought I was going to miss out on some of the best things, like the best chefs and the best experiences of adventure and things like that. And my experience has been the opposite, that I've gotten more adventure, more cultural exchange and things like that. And I've thought about that the emotional system that we have today, like what we, what we want is these emotional experiences. We wouldn't, they, they had the same emotional system back then. And so if I get a sense of wonder from something, from traveling across the world to see something, that sense of wonder, they must have also had too, but they weren't traveling around the world. Or my sense of adventure, and the way I've been putting it is that if I go to see the latest Avengers movie and I think, oh my God, that's amazing. Look at this crazy stuff going on on the screen. They must, we couldn't have, I couldn't have the, the emotional system to sense that if it wasn't useful in some way in the past. Because evolution knocks out things, especially energy consuming things like the, the brain, if, if it's not necessary. So I'm thinking, you know, my first thought is when they listen to the Iliad, they must have felt like the same sense. But we have, I suspect that they had just as rich an experience as we have today, or probably more so, because they don't depend on a plane to fly us around the world to get there. Or now I think we have to, we, we feel like we have to pay for experiences. Yeah. And, and indeed, often we, what we do is we judge the value of those experiences based on what we pay for them. So, you know, you talk about eating with fine chefs and, you know, it, it, it raises a sort of it's a wonderful question is, you know, you go to, when you go to a restaurant, part of the value of your experience is based on what you pay for it. So if you're paying $500 for a fancy tasting menu, you're paying for the value of that experience. And that's part of your enjoyment because it feeds into a particular system of values that we have, which are all about monetized experience. Likewise, we have this system of value based around novelty. And again, that kind of, you know, this idea that it's got to be something new, that it's got to, you've got to have, you've got to have, yeah, in, in the absence of novelty, it's sort of boring. And I think with, you know, Zmasi and others was, they didn't have this insatiable desire for, I think, endless novelty. They had curiosity. The world around them happened to be very interesting. But, you know, they contained their expectations within the fact that the world was ultimately how it was and it was relatively unchanging and it manifested itself in various different interesting ways over time. But that one didn't need to constantly seek out entertainment or satisfaction. I think also partially it was a function also of the nature of of hunter-gatherer life and certainly from a sort of in, for men in particular with Zhongwasi, and because women typically didn't hunt. But I think the work that they did was actually profoundly satisfying. So for Zhongwasi, this whole business of having you know a hunt, and I talked about the empathy and the sympathy and the engagement with the animal and the perspective sharing, it's a profoundly emotionally, physically, intellectually, and spiritually, and engaging practice hunting like that. And, you know, as one hunter, I mean, it's a 
phrase I've used often, but after, you know, a difficult hunt, I don't know how to describe it. You know, hunting makes my heart happy, my legs heavy, and my belly full. It satisfies every kind of working thing that you have because the tracking and the understanding of the animal, there's elements of risk. So it's intellectual, it's emotional, it's engaging. It's all these kind of things. You don't really feel like you need a whole lot of other stuff. You don't need to go and watch the Avengers after you've done that. You know, if you caught a magnificent kudu and fed everybody, you don't need a bloody Avengers movie. And you also don't, you know, nothing produced and amplified by the sort of cost of having, you know, um, slivers of abalone, you know, cured in absinthe or something. You don't really need it because nothing ta- ever tastes as good as the flesh of that animal that you've killed or nothing actually ever tastes as good as things like in the Kalahari, you know, the sweetness of coming across a waterhole in a dry season. You know, <laughs> you this, this this is what affluence without abundance is. is suddenly, the, you know, the extraordinary joy that comes out of these small things. And I think that's, again, one of the terrific things about that world and what it sort of enables us to reflect on our own experiences and desires. I think a lot of the things that we look for in happiness, and when I say we, I just mean generically the Western world in a sense, and actually not the Western world, the expanding expanding a capital economy of the world, is we often, you know, we're continuously dissatisfied with what we're getting. We continuously look for some kind of satisfaction, and we very rarely get it. We go, you know, that's why you look at, you, know, you review things and people buy stuff in the hope that suddenly it's going to give them some terrific satisfaction. And of course it doesn't. The satisfaction is momentary um, and it often turns into frustration very quickly as they, you know, suddenly that wonderful new shiny Mac on their desk, they realize what a pain in the ass it is to transfer all the stuff from the old Mac and then there's an endless uploads and updates and everything <laughs> So, yeah, I think half of it is, is you know, as the anthropologist Marshall Silent put it very famously in the 60s, reviewing Lee's thing, it was in some ways a sort of Zen path to affluence was the hunter-gatherer model by having few wants that were easily met. You know, it's far easier to be satisfied. Well, I wish I could keep going on. I give you an open invitation. I know that you're on a book tour right now, but I'd love to have you back to continue the conversation. Is there anything I didn't think to ask or anything you want to say directly to the listeners? I can't think of anything immediately at this point. I'm just looking, I'm looking forward to a little bit of freedom. I'm hoping we'll get out of our endless COVID cycle soon. And uh, I hope I'll be able to get back to Namibia. Well, James, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.